There we go. Okay, we've got a couple of announcements. Not much going on just yet. Next major thing coming up is a week from Saturday on May the 3rd. Jeff Phipps is a contact person. We'll be having our uh, annual garage sale. Uh, they'll be having the annual garage sale for Camp Arete. That will be held same place, Grace Bible Church, out on, uh, what's that, Schroeder Road, out just past Willowbrook Mall. And then May 17th is going to be the day for our men's prayer breakfast and, uh, and deacons meeting. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now, uh, before we get started, we'll open in prayer. But for those of you who are out there in the streaming audience, uh, usually we take questions during class, but our contact person via the electronics uh, isn't here. Now, wait a minute. Here comes Barb. Maybe she knows how to do it. I was just thinking about that because Bryce isn't here, Barb. You know how to pull up, pick up those questions? Okay, good. She may need a microphone, Eddie. Okay. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to study the Word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a great privilege that we have to come together to see one another and to be focused upon your Word and to be reminded that we're not standing alone. You, of course, are always with us, but it's good to know that there are other believers who we fellowship with who are standing firm for the truth. Our fathers, we gather together this evening. Our focus is upon you. It's upon your word and learning about your grace, learning about your purpose in, in human history so that we can properly understand what is going on in terms of your plan and purpose and understanding the basic theme, themes and structures of the scriptures. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our soul that we might have clear understanding of your word this evening. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're continuing our study on dispensations. And last time we looked at the distinction between dispensations and ages, and we're going to continue that tonight. Uh, we're also going to have a quick review of covenants, which I believe are the revelatory um, mechanism through which God communicated a change in most dispensations, not every every one, but in most of them, there was a, a new communication via a covenant. Now, the last time, toward the end of the class, a couple of questions came in from Mary from Georgia, and uh, we're going to answer those questions as we go through tonight, probably. One had to do with understanding what does it mean to glorify God and how do you glorify God, and the other question had to do with what does it mean that why does God need to have his character vindicated? So we're going to look at that within the structure of uh, understanding the angelic conflict, and we'll get to that, I hope, before the class is over with this evening. Okay, just by way of review, we looked at these covenants last time, that there are the initial Gentile covenants, which I believe are modifications of the same 
creation covenant. There are similarities but differences, and those differences are introduced because of sin. So you have some initial commands given to man that he is to be fruitful and multiply. He is to, uh, he is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the uh, beasts of the field. He is to take care of the garden. He is to take care of creation and give an oversight there. There's one prohibition, that is, he's not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's created in the image and likeness of God, so that means he is God's delegated representative authority over creation. Uh, the word that is used, I didn't use it before, the word that is used is vicegerent, not vice-regent. Don't flip the... Uh, consonants there. There is a word vice-regent. A regent is a king and a vice-regent is the the one who is his assistant or next in line. Okay? That is like the vice president, the one next in line in authority. A vice-gerent is someone who is sent to represent the king and who stands as, as the king's representative with authority over a, a an entity, whatever it may be, another country, an army, something of that uh, of that quality. So, the human human beings are created as a vicegerent. We represent God. We are uh, uh, creating His image to rule over the creation as His representative. Now, when man sins, disobeys the mandate, the prohibition, then there are certain changes occur. There's a constitutional change in man. He becomes spiritually dead. There are constitutional defects that reverberate through all of, all of creation. So that you then, at this point, you have the introduction scientifically of the second law of thermodynamics. Prior to this, uh, matters has, the first law of thermodynamics came into effect during the creation week. During the creation week, God creates matter Energy at the end of the creation week, creation ceases. You have a finite amount of matter and energy. But starting with the the fall, you now have energy running down, moving to a state of entropy. And so, this sooner or later, that will of course run out. But everything begins to deteriorate. Everything begins to grow old. Everything begins to need. Uh, the grass needs to be cut. The house needs to be painted. Uh, things rust, all, everything begins to deteriorate. But essentially the focus is in the Adamic covenant is on how the curse primarily affects the, the actors, that is the people who are actively involved in that scene, the serpent, uh, Eve and Adam. And so there are changes that take place. And then that situation continues through until the flood. And then there is a judgment on the planet. Everybody is, is wiped out in the flood except for Noah, his three sons, and their four wives. I mean, including Noah's wife, of course. And the Noahic covenant is still in effect. But there's failure again that occurred at the Tower of Babel. And so instead of working through the entire human race, God began to work through one particular group, the descendants of Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham that promised land, seed, and blessing. 
and each one of those elements is further expanded in a subsequent covenant, the, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant went into effect immediately when God cut that covenant with Abraham in Genesis uh, 12 through 17. There's different stages there of promise and then the actual cutting of the covenant in Genesis chapter chapters 15 and Genesis chapter 17. The three subsequent covenants are expansions on the Abrahamic covenant, and they don't come into effect until until the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age to establish the millennial kingdom. I'm using that term age in a rather broad sense because uh, in the Old Testament they didn't understand all the different dispensations that were coming. They just knew that at some time the Messiah would come and establish a kingdom. And that's when all of these three these three covenants would be fulfilled. And then there's the one conditional or temporary covenant, and that's the Mosaic covenant. In contrast to the temporary nature of the Mosaic covenant, the other covenants to Israel are permanent, everlasting, and will not change. Now, as we look at history... And I should have put this slide up here earlier, so I'm going to have to spin down to the end and then come back. As we look at at how uh, the dispensations are laid out, we're talking about ages, okay, in the ages of civilization. And just to give you an overview, we have eternity past, and then the first broad age, which incorporates three dispensations, is the age of the Gentiles. It begins with the creation in Genesis chapter 1, and it extends down past the Noahic flood to the Tower of Babel. See, we have a little ark picture right up here at the top and a Tower of Babel right there. And it's with the Tower of Babel that God uh, ceases to work with all of humanity. They have united again. Uh, against him as they did before the flood, and he comes up with a new plan to work through one individual, and that is Abraham. And this begins the age of Israel, because from this point on, God is going to work through Abraham and his descendants as the primary uh, path of blessing to the human race. Uh, the uh, the Jewish people begin with Abraham. The nation doesn't begin until Mount Sinai. But God's plan to work solely and exclusively through the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, begins in Genesis chapter 12. So the age of Israel extends to the cross, at which is the first coming of Jesus Christ. And it is just after that that the church age begins on the day of Pentecost. The church age extends to the rapture of the church, and then there's just a brief little seven-year period that, that actually goes back to the age of Israel. That's the tribulation, still part of the age of Israel, the last seven years in God's timetable for Israel. And then the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, and we have the messianic age or the millennium. And when the millennium ends, then God create, there will be a rebellion again, a judgment, and God will then destroy the present heavens and earth and establish the new heavens and new earth, and we go into eternity future. So that gives us an overview of these ages. Now we'll go back 
to, the, to uh, I'll go back to the earlier slide to look at these ages in, in detail. We saw last time that an age is a large era or epoch marked by definite boundaries. It's a, the word indicates a fixed time frame, whereas a dispensation from the going back to the initial Greek word, everybody had a little trouble with this because too often you heard dispensation defined as a period of time where a period of time was a primary characteristic, administration, if mentioned, was a secondary characteristic. Now, you go back to Schofield and others, you uh, were, were not as precise in their definitions as they should be. The reason I keep emphasizing this is the Greek word, or the whole word group, whether it's oikonomia, oikonomas, uh, any of those words, uh, oikonomeo, these words all refer to an administration or a stewardship, and if you, you can look at a hundred Greek dictionaries and you won't find a single one that include anything related to time in the definition of oikonomia. They all talk about the fact that it relates to an administration, a stewardship, a responsibility. When we get, as I said last time, when we emphasize that aspect of it, that brings in as, and un, as something we can unpack in terms of, of the responsibilities that distinguish each administration, and these are related to the tests and the failures of each administration. So obviously any administration is bordered by time. You can talk about the administration of Bill Clinton, and what you're emphasizing when you do that, what comes to people's minds are the characteristics and the qualities of that administration not necessarily the time period during which it occurred, but obviously it's marked by a beginning a beginning and an end. We looked last time at the age of the Gentiles, which is the first broad age that goes from the creation to the call of Abraham in Genesis 12.1. So it covers the first 11 chapters of Genesis. As such, it covers three dispensations, the dispensation of innocence, Genesis 1:28 to 3:8, the dispensation of conscience, Genesis 3:9 to 8:14, and the dispensation of government from Genesis 8:15 to 11:32. So these are the di- different dispensations uh, in the first age of the Gentiles. Now there are several characteristics we looked at last time. There's one language. Everybody on the earth spoke one language. There were no linguistic distinctions. Everybody could understand each other. You can't imagine the value of that unless you've traveled a lot uh, internationally or if you tried to communicate the gospel or tried to teach the Bible to people that don't understand your language. I remember years ago when, in the year 2000, when I was invited by Jim Myers to come over to teach at a pastor's conference in Almaty, Kazakhstan. And we got there, and the uh, church building, the room we were in was, prob- was rectangular. It was probably about half the size of this room or a little bit less. And at night, they pushed all the desks up against the wall, and the, the students would throw their uh, pallets down on the gr- ground in there and a couple of other rooms, and they slept there. Then the next morning, they'd roll up their little pallet, put the little desks that they had back in place, and then we'd be ready and we'd sit there all day. The temperature in that room wasn't bad considering it was about 115 outside. The two air conditioners, which you, window units you had to talk over, 
uh, pretty much kept the temperature down to about a comfortable 98 degrees. And then on top of that, you had a communication problem. On one side of the room, you had Kazakh speakers. The other side of the room, you had Russian speakers. The Kazakh speakers had a Kazakh Bible which didn't have anything to do with the, didn't have anything translated from the Old Testament. Half my stuff had to do with the Old Testament. I was dealing with spiritual warfare. How can you teach somebody about the fall of Satan and Isaiah and Ezekiel when they've never even read the Old Testament? And so, uh, and then not only that, but the, uh, the English, tra- I mean, the, the Kazakh translation they had was translated by a Baptist from the New International Version, not from the Greek. So you really weren't sure what was going on. So I would speak, and you had a, I had a Kazakh translator who was excellent. I mean, she really, she was the wife of the pastor, and she was, she was excellent. She spoke, fluently spoke six or seven languages. Then I had a, a Russian translator who wasn't that good because words like justification and propitiation stumped him. He had, he had been translating for Christian, American Christian pastors for at least 10 years. But those words stumped him. That ought to tell you a lot about what gets taught over there. Not much. And sadly, nobody uses th- that kind of technical vocabulary because he was stumped. So Jim had to fly his regular translator, Margaret, in from uh, Kiev so that she could, uh, she could handle the Russian translation. One day, Jana, who was the Kazakh translator, had to go to, uh, go down to the visa office to take care of some problems. Uh, with one of the students. So there was a student who didn't, there wasn't a single student who could translate English to Kazakh, but there was one who could translate Russian to Kazakh. So I would teach, and it would be translated by the somewhat barely competent translator from English to Russian, and then the other guy would translate it from Russian to Kazakh. I have no idea if they heard anything close to what I was saying. That's the Tower of Babel. So that judgment came, and after that, God calls um, called out Abraham. So initially, there was one language. There was one race. They still didn't get along. There was uh, You couldn't cry racism because there weren't any distinctions. They had no canon of Scripture that we know of. There, there may have been something because all those terms that we see, the repeated phrase that we see, these are the records of, these are the records of Adam, these are the records of the creation, these are the records of Adam, these are the records of Noah, these are the records of Abraham, indicate that they were probably writing something down, but I don't know if there was any kind of transmission. There's no indication of that. Salvation was still by faith in Jesus Christ, but it was in the future promised uh, seed of the woman. They didn't know the name Jesus Christ. They knew there was a promised redemption through the seed of the woman. There's no distinct administrative entity during that time. Uh, there, the divine institutions are developed, which we'll cover when we get there, and they are attacked by Satan from the very beginning. Marriage wasn't uh, just attacked recently. It's been attacked all along. That pretty much covers the first age, the age of the Gentiles, then we have the age of the Jews. Now, the scripture here is Genesis 12 through Malachi. The majority of the Old Testament covers the age of the Jews, uh, except for prophetic passages that focus on the way things will be during the millennium. 
passages such as Isaiah 11, 35, 64, 65, etc. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, are included in this because they cover the period of the life of Christ, and that was all during the age of Israel. Revelation uh, 6, actually that should be, well, Revelation 4 and 5 are in heaven. Revelation 6 through 19 are also part of Daniel. That describes Daniel's 70th week, so that would be part of the last seven-year period of the age of Israel. So that's the scripture for that. I put the exception here of John 13 through 17 because that's the last night before the Lord went to the cross when he's teaching his disciples about uh, spiritual life truth for the church age. So that's somewhat prophetic. That wasn't what was enacted at that time. He's telling them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he's teaching them about fellowship and uh, walking by the Spirit during that uh, that last teaching time with his disciples. It covers two dispensations, the dispensations of the patriarchs, sometimes referred to as promise, from Abraham to Sinai, from Abraham to the giving of the law. And the second period, the second dispensation, is from the giving of the law from Moses to Jesus Christ. Those are the two basic dispensations. Now, uh, there's a third dispensation that I put in there that I believe is, and we'll cover it when we get there, Most people today don't recognize it, but I think it's a distinct dispensation. At least it's a critical hinge dispensation, and that's the the Messianic age or the period when Christ comes the first time, the period of the first advent, and we'll cover that when we get there. I think it fits the criteria, but we won't get distracted with that right now. Uh, And then the tribulation, which is from the signing of the covenant, that begins Daniel's 70th week to the second advent of Christ. Basic characteristics of this age. There are many languages now. The Tower of Babel, God scattered languages. When everybody gets a different language, then people tend to group together according to those languages. That's when races develop. Because when everybody got different languages, these five or six people would go off over here because they couldn't understand anybody else. And those six or eight people, they were probably paired up male and female. God's pretty accurate that way. And those eight people, four men and four women, would go off that way. It's probably a lot more, but you understand the principle. And they would divide up according to who could understand them. And because nobody else could understand them, you're pretty limited as to who you're going to select for a spouse. So they would select someone for a spouse. They would uh, then have children. And over time, certain uh, genetic characteristics would dominate. I have a sneaking suspicion that God didn't just randomly throw out those languages, but he knew what the various genetic Uh, tendencies were in different groups, and he selected who would be in which language group in order to carve up the human race according to certain uh, genetic characteristics. So many languages led to many tribes or nations. In the age of Israel, there's a specific administrator throughout the two dispensations, and that's uh, our three dispensations, that's Israel. Israel was to give the gospel not only to their own people, but were to be a source of the gospel for those who came to Israel. 
In the New Testament, the church is sent out. Israel was positioned at the at the uh, hub of the world. If you were on a trade route, if you were out driving a semi-camel, hauling goods from Egypt to Mesopotamia, you had to go through Israel. If you were sending goods back and you first wanted to trade off some things in the Caucasus Mountains, you would haul goods up to the Caucasus Mountains and get a new load of goods to take to Egypt. And once again, you're traveling south, you go through Egypt. All roads, I mean, you went through Israel. All roads went through Israel. And as they would go to Israel, the, according to Deuteronomy, uh, the, the system was set up so that people were, if they were obedient to the law and were uh and were being blessed by God, then people would be astounded by what they saw. They, they would see a nation that w- where there was freedom, a nation where there was tremendous prosperity and blessing, and they would say, well, what is it that makes a difference? How come the, this, the Israelites are like this? Why are they such a great nation? And then they would find out, and they would take the good news back to their nations. That's how God designed things. Uh, that failed. In, in, in the church age, we take the word out to people. And that is ultimately going to fail because people will reject it. And as we go through this study, what we're going to see is that in every dispensation, in every age, God sets up, I think, every possible set of circumstances whereby people can succeed or fail. And they're always going to fail. Because he's demonstrating something. He's demonstrating that unless human beings are completely dependent upon him, nothing works. Nothing else works. Whether it's just a little bit or a lot, they have to be totally, whether God's provision for them is a little or a lot, they have to be completely dependent upon him. Otherwise, nothing works. Salvation wasn't on the basis of keeping the law, but it was through faith in Christ. Just as today, looking to the promise of the seed, the redeemer, the seed of the woman who would redeem them for their, for their sins. Revelation from God. How did you know the truth? Revelation came through Israel. They were the custodians of divine revelation. They were, not only did they receive it through the prophets, but they were to record it and to preserve it for the ages. And so this lasts from Abraham all the way to the second advent with the exception of the church age. The church age is sometimes called by dispensationalists the great parenthesis because it was not foreseen or prophesied about from the Old Testament. That's because they didn't want to give Israel a clue as to what might happen in the future. If Israel had known that God was going to have another plan for another people, in the Old Testament, then they would have known that, well, maybe they would have, it would have been a hint that maybe they weren't going to receive the Messiah. So by not announcing anything about the future church age or the possibility of it, then the test of whether or not they would accept the Messiah or not was a real test. They didn't know what might happen. So that's why that was kept a complete secret, which is referred to as a mystery Then we come to the church age, the age of the church. In terms of the Gospels, the primary teaching about the spiritual life of the church age comes in John 13 through 17, those passages where Jesus is teaching his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. 
the church age actually begins with the day of Pentecost, and it extends to the rapture of the church. And so that's how we come to understand when and how long that um, uh, the church age lasts. The New Testament epistles, except for certain portions that deal with the tribulation and Revelation 1 through, uh, uh, and, and also that should be a, instead of a semicolon there, that should be a closed parenthesis. And Revelation 1 through 3 covers the church age. Um, the only part of the New Testament that doesn't address it are prophetic portions that deal with the tribulation. But the New Testament epistles from Romans to Jude are addressed to the church age believers. And we're given a sufficient revelation there. We're given everything we need to know about living the spiritual life of the church age. And so if there's something that's not there, it's, it's, it speaks volumes because God didn't think it was important. But that's, that's the primary focus of study for the spiritual life of the church age are those epistles. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't study the rest of the Scripture because the rest of the Scripture provides background and provides a tremendous amount of, of information that we need in order to understand what's in the epistles. Uh, I'm known of some dispensationalists who only teach Paul's epistles. That almost smacks of, of uh, hyper-dispensationalism. I've known of some uh, dispensationalists who will only teach Paul's later epistles. That really is more like hyper-dispensationalism. But we are to teach the whole counsel of God, uh, the Scripture teaches, everything from Genesis through Revelation. Not all of it is as directly applicable to us some of it is indirectly applicable, but all of it is significant. For example, when we study the Mosaic Law, we study especially the passages in the Old Testament that deal with government. It tells us a lot about God's standards for government. It gives us a pattern of government, of one government that God set up on the earth, that is the government, the theocracy of Israel. That doesn't mean other countries should should just copy that, but it gives us a framework, a guideline, a pattern for how government should function and how government should operate. So there's application uh, and implications from the rest of Scripture that applies to the church or can be applied to the church rather than uh, being directly addressed to the church. There are two subdivisions in the church age. The first is the pre-canon period when they didn't have a complete, completed New Testament, when it was still being written and still being put together. And in fact, during this time, revelation regarding the nature of the church was still being given. When the Apostle Paul wrote his first epistle, which was Galatians, he didn't have as firm a grasp on some aspects of the church and the church age, as he did later when he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and those three key prison epistles really focus on a lot of key aspects related to uh, the Christian life of the church age. So there's a progress of revelation even within the narrow confines of the two and a half decades or so in which the New Testament was written. I believe the earliest book was probably either Matthew or James around 45, 46, or 47. 
then the Pauline epistle, I mean the Johannine epistles, the Gospel of John, the, Joh- the whole body of Johannine writings were probably written last between 85 and 95. So you're roughly talking about a 50-year period there when the New Testament is being written. But there's even a progress of revelation uh, during that particular time. So you have the pre-canon period from Pentecost in Acts 2 until the completion of the canon in A.D. 96. And then the second period is the post-canon period, which builds on what is revealed in the canonical books of the New Testament from 96 A.D. until the rapture, when God's revelation has ceased. And the issue there, some people say, well, why doesn't God speak like he did before? Because he's already spoken. He's already given us the information. Now the test is, are we going to go back to the Word? Are we going to study the Word? Are we going to learn what He has revealed and apply it uh, to our lives? So that covers the third age, which is the age of the church. Now there are some distinguishing characteristics, and these relate to the unique assets that God has given church-age believers. First of all, we have union with Christ through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. Nobody in history has had that kind of union with deity. But believers in the church age have. We are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are also indwelt. Every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. We're in, I mean, by Jesus Christ. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit who creates a sanctified temple. Temple is a place where deity dwells. So God the Holy Spirit makes our body a temple, sets it apart for the indwelling of Jesus Christ and God the Father. So we have the universal indwelling of Jesus Christ, the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the um, universal ministry of the believer, our ambassadorship. We represent the throne of God to this earth. We are, our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. The problem that a lot of folks have is they confuse their earthly citizenship with their heavenly citizenship. We're talking about this in Romans 13. Now, because we have, we have, we actually have a dual citizenship. It's not one or the other. There's a heavenly citizenship which overrides the earthly one, but it doesn't replace it. So we still have everyday responsibilities of our earthly citizenship in terms of of whatever nation in which we live and being a good citizen of that nation. But it is overridden by the fact that we have a higher authority to which we are obedient, and we have a higher calling, which is to represent God to the human race. We have a priesthood. This is how we represent ourselves to God. Every believer is a priest, and we're able to have direct access to God by virtue of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Nobody ever had that before in human history. Nobody will have that afterward. We have spiritual gifts. There's nothing comparable to spiritual gifts in Israel. There's nothing comparable to that in the future uh, kingdom. There are some things related to uh, revelatory gifts, prophecy, uh, for example, uh, Joel 2, 28 through 30, talking about young men having dreams and uh, young women seeing visions and 
that has to do with a uh, special breed that's not ecstatics. Ecstasy is the modus operandi of the uh, pagans. Ecstasy is pure emotion. That's how it's defined by anybody who has studied it. Ecstasy is not biblical. Ecstasy is the absence of thought and the domination of emotion. This was what the uh, priests of Baal did. This is what the priestesses of of the Asherah did when they're dancing around uh, the sacrifice there with Elijah and they're weeping and wailing and they're screaming and they're gashing themselves to try to get to God's attention. That's ecstatics. The role of the prophet in Scripture was that God impressed and communicated through his thinking. And it could be through dreams, it could be through visions, but it was content. When you look at those examples of Joseph having dreams, that's not ecstasy. That's how God's communicating to him. That is rational, logical communication via a dream. Okay? That's not what you see the priests of the pagan gods and goddesses do. Uh, So there's nothing like... The, the biblical relationship with God that we have in the in the uh, church age. Furthermore, we have a completed canon of Scripture. And today we have not only the completed canon of Scripture, we have about a thousand and one translations that we can examine, not to mention all the tools that we have. seems like the more light that we have available, the more darkness there is in the world. We have the filling by the Holy Spirit to enable us in our supernatural way of life. We have a salvation that is by faith alone in Christ alone. We now understand the dynamics of that work of salvation. In the Old Testament, they just had shadows and pictures. But we have not only have we seen and we have testimony to what happened on the cross, we have its explanation and books like Romans and Galatians and others to help us understand all the dynamics. Also, spiritually, all racial, social, gender distinctions were removed uh, as regards our standing before God. Men are still male. Women are still female. Slaves are economically still owned by their masters. Masters still own their slaves. That that physical reality doesn't change. But in the Old Testament, if you weren't a free male, you couldn't have direct access to God. That excluded women. That excluded slaves. That excluded Gentiles. That's why you had the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women in the, in the, in the temple. But once Christ died and the veil was torn from top to bottom, Access to God was equal for all without regard to social status, without regard to gender, without regard to uh, ethnicity. It was equal for all, immediate access to God. And then a ninth point that I don't have on here. I put it in my notes, but I didn't fix the slide. The ninth point is that we are dead to sin. We're all dead to sin. We went through that study in Romans 6 recently. That's unique. No believer prior to the day of Pentecost was ever dead to sin. The 
doesn't mean he did, we don't have a sin nature. It means that our sin nature is no longer the tyrant over us it once was. We died to sin. That never happened before. That explains why there were some problems in the Old Testament. But even though we're dead to sin, we still willingly submit to it and have the same problems they did in the Old Testament when they weren't dead to sin. That's God's object lesson. He's teaching how horrible sin is and the control of sin. And even when they were were still under its control in the Old Testament, they couldn't do anything about it. And in the church age, we're not under its control, but we willingly resubmit ourselves to its control on a regular basis, more regular for some than others. In the church age, we have the mystery doctrine, which simply means information that was not disclosed by God until until Jesus was rejected as Messiah by Israel. When that happens in Matthew 12 and Matthew 13, Jesus will begin to teach in parables so that he's veiling the revelation. And only those who are believers are going to get the clues to understand the parables. He intentionally veils his message to those who are have already expressed their rejection of him. And starting Matthew 13, you start getting information related to the interim period until the kingdom comes. Uh, so the church is not revealed in the Old Testament. The church and issues related to the church are not revealed until the latter part of Jesus' ministry as he prepares his disciples for that coming age. And uh, the passages that talk about the mystery are in Ephesians 3, 1 through 11, Colossians 1, 25 to 27, uh, Romans 16:25 to 26, and I must have gotten these notes out of the uh, from my uh, when I go to Ukraine because I have the note that the uh, the chapter is different in the Russian Bible. You don't need to pay attention to that. Okay, First Corinthians 2:7, Paul says, "We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. That is the glory for the church age believer." So the scope of the church age goes from Pentecost in Acts 2 to the rapture. Then we come to the age of Christ. Uh, that millennium period, uh, that millennium covers a thousand years, during which time Jesus Christ personally rules the earth from the throne of David in Jerusalem. A time, the time begins, depending on how you want to divide it, from his second coming, but there's a sort of a 75-day interim period cleanup period at the end of the tribulation before the, uh, the, the, rule, the millennium rule itself actually begins. Key scriptures are given in Isaiah 11, 35, 62, 64, 65, and Revelation 20. And then I'm just going to cover some basic points about the um, millennial kingdom and the messianic age. The second advent of Christ kicks things off. Jesus returns to the earth, Revelation 19, 7 through 8, and 14 to 15. There's also references in Jude 14 to 15 and 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. That begins the period. Then there's the removal of the abomination of desolation. There's a cleansing from, there has to be a cleansing in Israel from the abomination that took place during the tribulation period. 
the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be cast into the lake of fire. This all occurs in this 75-day interval that uh, Daniel speaks about in Daniel uh, 12, 11, that, uh, that takes place, it's this cleanup period. Satan is cast into the abyss. Notice the Antichrist and false prophet are sent directly to the lake of fire. Satan, though, is cast into the abyss, and I believe that Satan and all of his demons are cast into the lake of, into the abyss. Not just Satan, but all the demons, because they're released at the end of the uh, millennial kingdom. I don't think it's just Satan, but I think it's it's all the demons for one last uh, one last hurrah before they are completely destroyed and then sent to the lake of fire. There'll be a judgment of Jews. There'll be a judgment of Gentiles. Uh, resurrection of Old Testament saints. All of this occurs there in that 75-day interval between the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom and then the resurrection of the tribulation saints. That all takes place right at the beginning. And then we have the most perfect dispensation or age, both uh, in human history. There's no satanic worship. Uh, there's no satanic activity, rather, only true worship. The millennial kingdom begins with all believers, no unbelievers. Everybody that starts is our unbelievers. But when we get to the end of the age, after a thousand years, there are millions upon millions of their children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that will willingly follow Satan in deception and rebellion against God. And notice that it's not because they're not living in perfect environments. It's not because they don't have the right kind of government. It's not because they don't have the right kind of educational system. It's not because they don't have the right social system. It's not because there's no social justice. All those things are going to be perfect. It's because their sin nature is oriented towards rebellion and they choose to reject uh, God and the Lord Jesus Christ anyway. It's going to be a period of the greatest uh, period of spirituality, according to Joel and Isaiah. Uh, Israel will be restored to their land, to all of the land God promised them, not just the amount that they've held in the past, but all the land that goes from the from the river of Egypt to uh, to the Euphrates. That will cover most of the Transjordan, modern Transjordan, most of uh, Syria, some of Lebanon and some of Saudi Arabia. All of that will be part of Israel's domain during the millennial kingdom. There will be genuine universalism at that time. There will be universal peace and prosperity, perfect world government, and a universal knowledge of God so that everyone will know the truth to the degree that no one needs to be taught anymore. Uh, Everybody will know it according to the uh, principles of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31:34. There'll be radical changes in nature. Creation will be loosed from its bondage to sin. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but it's going to be more like it was between the fall of Adam and and Noah. In some ways, better. There's not going to be the lie. Uh, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. And so the, the antagonism among the animals will not exist. It will be like it was before the fall. The, a child can put his hand in a viper's den, in an adder's den, and not be bitten, not worry about it, so there won't be poisonous snakes. 
there's not going to be, uh, so the, the, the carnivores won't be uh, carnivorous anymore. So there's going to be some sort of biological, physiological shift that takes place uh, in their systems, a reversal of what happened at the cross, I mean at the, at the fall. Animals lose their ferocity, as indicated in those verses. Plant life will abound, Isaiah 35, 1, 2, and 7. Life will be extended on the earth, Isaiah 65, 20. Passages talk that, that if a person dies before they're 100, this is hyperbole. If a person dies before they're, 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 uh, they're 100, they'll be thought to have, to, to have died very young. Most people will live to be 1,000 or more, or more. Not well, not quite more because it's only 1,000 years. There'll be a perfect administration of justice by a perfect judge. All unbelievers are removed before the millennium begins, and so those born during the millennium will need salvation. So there will be a lot of evangelism. Uh, there will be a first-hand accounting. They'll be able to see Jesus Christ. So faith that is not by sight is not going to be as operative as it is now. They will be able to see things that people today don't, and they'll still reject. But salvation is still the same, faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so what I've said so far is that we divide these periods into ages. They have things in common. The age of the Gentiles, the age of Israel, the church age, and the Messianic age or the millennium. Now, these will then be subdivided into dispensations. Now, let's look at an important factor as we begin this study because really dispensations focuses on history, understanding human history. One of the questions that has plagued mankind is why did God create Adam and Eve? Now, I recognize that even with this answer, people are going to say, well, why did God even create the angels? Well, ultimately, we don't know the answer to why God created anything other than the theological conclusion that it appears that God desired to have creatures who would worship him, honor him freely of their own volition without being forced, and that there were ways in which he he would be able to uh, bless them out of his own desire, not because he needed to, but because he wanted to. And that's a difference that we see, for example, with Islam, where you have an e- eternal singular deity who needs, if he is love, as Islam asserts, although it's not there, love is not ever used uh, to ascribe a, 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 an attribute of Allah. Allah is not a loving God. Allah, if Allah were loving, then we'd have a real, Islam would have a real problem because there's no one for Allah to love in eternity past. So if Allah is loving, then he would be dependent upon uh, his creatures so that he would have an object for his love. So he can't be loving because if he were loving, he wouldn't be God. He's not loving. He can't be God either. So it, you're left with the conundrum that Allah, by, by the definition of his attributes, really can't be a self-sufficient God. And if you're, a God is not self-sufficient, well, he's not much of a God. He's dependent. He becomes a slave, as it were, to his creatures, or he is just a tyrant. 
and there's nothing good or kind or loving about him. God, as we understand him in the Bible, is a triune God. So throughout eternity past, he always had an object for his love. God loved the Son, and God loved the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was loved by the Father and was loved by the Son, and in turn loved the Son and loved the Father. So there is an eternal society in the Godhead based upon the eternal love of the attribute of God, so that God is self-sufficient. But he desired to create creatures who would have free will to freely choose to obey him so that he could share, bless, enjoy that fellowship with his creatures freely. The first creatures he created were the angels. The original creation is mentioned, I believe, in Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 states, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, at the recent Chafer Conference, uh, Elliot Johnson takes, was our evening speaker, Elliot takes a slightly different view, a view that is held by some scholars, and that is uh, the difference between his view and my view can be explained with this illustration. Let's say you're looking at a book on the life of somebody, and the, the book, you get this, this uh, photo album, and the cover says, the life of, let's just be simplistic here, the life of John and Mary. And that's on the front cover. You open it up, and the first picture is their wedding picture. Now, you don't know anything about when they were born, where they were born, who their parents were, if they have any siblings, where they're getting married. You just open, you just see the title page, And then when you open it, the first picture, something's already happened. You know, they've already courted. They've already, they've met each other. They've courted. They've decided to spend their life together because now you're met with the visual evidence of their marriage. That's the way that, that Elliot, that's his view of create, uh, of Genesis 1. Genesis 1-1 is like the title page. When you get to Genesis 1-2, you've opened the album, you have a picture, and the earth was out form, is, is without form and void, and darkness covers the face of the earth. That's the first picture you see. So you realize something has happened already, and in his view, as in my view, what has happened is something that is dramatic, something that is, ju- that is related to a judgment. So on that we can agree. I disagree with that view because it doesn't tell us anything about original creation. And I believe it's important. I believe in his view, Genesis 1-1 is often parallel to Genesis 2-4. Genesis 2-4 is a concluding statement. Genesis 1-1 is just an introductory statement. I disagree with that. I believe Genesis 1-1 tells us in the beginning God created the heavens. Now, that's the heavens. The heavens are a finite entity. They're not infinite. Often we're told in modern science the heavens are infinite. They're without end. Only God is infinite. You can't have two infinites. Study philosophy. That's that's a mutually exclusive concept. There's only one infinite, and that is God. God created the heavens. That means they are finite. There is an end to the heavens. He created the heavens, and he created the earth. doesn't say anything about stars. We read stars, we think heavens, that means stars. No, stars are hanging in the heavens. 
The heavens are just an, a, a, a spatial entity. There's nothing there. It's just bounded by space. It's like when I was in the seventh grade, I did a science project where I took a, a box that a refrigerator had come in, closed it all up with duct, duct tape, or first of all, I painted the inside all black, covered it, closed it all up with duct tape, cut an opening at one end so you could see in, and in the back corner, I put a yellow styrofoam uh, quarter of a ball that I had painted, big big one to indicate the sun, and then I put all of the planets. And I painted little stars on the back background. Now, when God created the heavens, it's like when I took that box and painted it all black. There weren't any planets yet, and there weren't any stars. There was just the space, just the heavens. And then God created the earth. And we don't know anything more about it than that. There's the heavens, there's a spatial entity, and there's one entity in there, and that's the earth. The sun's not created till later on. The stars are not created until later on. The moon's not created till later on. They're, the words that are used there doesn't, doesn't mean God made them appear. That's really bad Greek. The word there is asa. He made them. He created them at that point. So at this point, you only have two things. And based on Ezekiel 28, this is Eden, the garden of God. It's a different type of planet than what we have today. This is the original earth of, 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 of Genesis 1-1 and also of Ezekiel 28, uh, 14 and following. And then we have the fall of Lucifer. He was probably had his uh, location there on in the garden of God because Ezekiel 28 says he was in the Eden, the garden of God. This, the terminology and the description is very different from the description of Genesis 2. So then we have the fall of Lucifer and a judgment on the planet where it, it, the lights are turned off and it's packed in ice. When you turn the lights, heat off, it's going to go to absolute zero and everything is, is packed in ice. And then the Spirit of God moves upon the face of the deep and there's a renovation of the planet. The words that are used there in Genesis 1-2, if you had just one of them, I would think that maybe all this is talking about is the unformed building blocks that God's going to use to do the creation. But you have three terms, tohu v'bohu, the darkness, and the deep. Later on in Scripture, these terms all relate to sin and judgment. If you go to the opera, as soon as you hear the bass, you know the villain is coming on the scene. These are three bass notes that are sounded in Genesis 1-2. Tohu vabohu, darkness and the deep. The villain has arrived, and there's judgment on the planet. And so there are then stages of creation. God creates the sun, he creates the stars, and we have the the new creation where God is going to place man. So we have to understand what happens here in terms of the, orig- the original creation. There's the angels. They have volition. Satan falls, according to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. I'm not going to get into You You look at a lot of your modern study Bibles, and they will tell you that Isaiah 14... 
12 to 14, and Ezekiel 28, 12 and following. Uh, A lot of people take Ezekiel 28 as a fall of Satan, even though they may not take Isaiah 14 as a fall of Satan. But both of them refer to the fall of Satan. The Ryrie Study Bible is the only study Bible I know of that still treats both as actually the fall of Satan. And I usually get in discussions with this at some with pastors and others because uh, there are a lot of places where p- people no longer believe this schol- in a scholarly way. We'll look at this a little bit, but um, it's been defended in some pretty stout, significant academic uh, publications, doctoral dissertations. People just choose to be willingly ignorant of these sources. So God brings darkness, chaos, or judgment on Satan. There's no death prior to this time. There, the angels don't die. They don't have physical death. They continue to live. There's no pre-Adamic race. There are no fossils. There's no stratification at this point. It's not a long period of time. This view used to be called the gap view. I, I call it the old, there was a, the old view was the old earth gap view. And if you look at older dispensational Books, almost all of them start talking with the fall of Satan because they understand that God's plan of human history is directly related to what happens with the fall of Satan. It's odd that in some recent, among some recent dispensationalists, they, they, they cut that connection. But I don't think you can cut that connection. I think that human history is going to be related to understanding what happens with Satan's fall. And so Satan's going to fall, and then there's going to be a restoration of the planet in order to demonstrate something. I want to close with this because I opened with a question that Mary and Georgia asked in terms of of how how can God vindicate his character. Vindicate, the concept of vindication is, is to prove in a court of law that you're not guilty, to demonstrate or validate uh, what you have done. And so there seems to be a charge uh, that this is a theological deduction that Satan has brought against God. Now, how do we know that? We know that because uh, we'll come back to this next time, but in Matthew 25:41, Jesus talks about uh, the lake of fire, which was prepared, perfect tense, in the past, completed, was prepared for the devil and his angels. That means it's already been prepared. Why isn't Satan there? Why aren't the demons there? Now, if it's prepared for them, why aren't they there now? Something caused a delay in the application of their judicial sentence to the lake of fire. Now, what we extrapolate based on, for good cause, based on what happens in Job 1 and 2, what happens in some other places in Scripture, is it appears that Satan somehow challenged God's authority to send him to the lake of fire. I don't think it's simply as simple as saying, uh, God, how can a just God send his creatures to the lake of fire? I think it's more complex than that. that. That's a summary. I think it's more complex than that. What we see is that he's challenging, is this a, is this a judicially righteous decision? How can a loving God send a creature to eternity, the eternal pain of a lake of fire, What crime merits that? I mean, punishment should somehow fit the crime, right? How can that punishment fit a crime? God is, one of the things God is demonstrating in history is that 
the basic crime in human history is that Eve disobeyed God and ate a piece of fruit. Not something most people would think is a great, awful, terrible thing to do. She ate a piece of fruit, but it was unauthorized. It was a disobedience to God. And what God is demonstrating is that simple little act of disobedience, even though it seems innocuous, that is the source of all war, all violence, all famines, all physical suffering, all disease, all heartache, everything miserable in human history was the result of eating a piece of fruit. What God is demonstrating is that that something that brings about that much heartache and misery and horror in human existence is worthy of a punishment of eternity in the lake of fire. He's demonstrating that this is a righteous judgment in human history. He's validating that eternal sentence in the lake of fire. That's what I mean. He's vindicating his righteousness. He's demonstrating this was a righteous and just decision. And in the midst of this, his love and his uh, grace are bestowed, and everybody's given the opportunity to respond to his grace. Now, we'll get into that in more detail uh, next time. We'll start next time with the and how the angelic conflict relates to the dispensations. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight. We ask that you give guidance and direction to our thinking. Help us to understand uh, what you have revealed, understand our role in history, that we may glorify you by being obedient to you. When we're obedient to you, that brings glory to you because it honors who you are and it reflects the goodness and righteousness of your character. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.